Oh, good morning. It's uh, great. I feel like I'm at a press conference this morning. We've got, we've got quite a few mics on. Uh, right, definitely in stereo this morning, uh, which is good. Um, so it's great to be here uh, in Moody'sburn and to be able to, to share uh, together. Perfect, here we go. So this morning I'd like to take up the theme authentic uh, and to look at what it means to be an authentic Christian. So we're going to look together at Matthew chapter 7 and we're going to read at verse 13. So Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. If you don't have your Bible, I'll put the words on the screen so you can, you can read along uh, with us. So Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, there we read, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognise them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And we trust God will have a blessing to the, the reading of his word. So authenticity is our theme for this morning. We want to think about what it means to be an authentic Christian, a real follower of Christ. What does that mean? And authenticity can be hard to find. Depending on where you are in the world, it can be a real struggle to find authenticity. For example, you might go to Shanghai. And in Shanghai, you could wake up one morning and decide that you're going to go to the iPair shop uh, to buy your brand new iPair phone. After that, you might go out for a bit of lunch at Pizza Hut. Uh, there you'd get the best pizza from around Shanghai. You might not, not want to stay at Pizza Hut for your coffee. You might want to go out to Sunbucks afterwards. <laughs> And then you can have a nice cup of coffee there. And then for your dinner, of course, you go to King Burger, where you can get fed, well fed. And then you may want to go to the gym and work off all of that uh, fast food that you've been eating. So you would w want to get on your, your flashiest gym gear, and you'd go for that puma of the sea. You'd get your tuna top on. <laughs> and then at the end of the night, you can, you can wash yourself down with a nice bottle of OK shampoo. It's all there in Shanghai. So, depending on where you go, authenticity can be hard to find. 
And you know, in our lives, authenticity is something that we both crave for and something that we, we reject and don't want as well. We crave for authenticity with the clothes that we wear, don't we? We want the right badge, we want the right brand, we want to have the right, uh, the right um, gadgets, the right cars, we want the right badge. We don't want fakes in our life, we want it to be the real deal. This is what culture would say to us, this is what people say in the streets. Um, if you walked around Middlesbrough today, um, people want the real deal. But then we can look at our lives. And when we look at our lives, we don't want authenticity in our lives. We're quite happy to put forward a fake portrayal of ourselves. And social media has fed into that in our culture, hasn't it? In, in, in our timeline, our society, where you can put the best of yourself up on social media and keep the worst off. So we put forward a fake portrayal of ourselves. And, you know, across the, across, just across, across our, our culture, the word fake is something that we're here more and more um, about. Fake news and the like. So authenticity can be hard to find. And in today's culture, there's a spectrum of authenticity. It's not just that there's authentic and fake. You can have shades in between. Whereas that's not how the Bible works. It's either true or it's false. It's either real or it's not. It's either authentic or it's not. And you know, in this passage here, in the uh, Matthew chapter 7, what we're dealing with is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount has to be probably the, the most quoted um, Sermon of Jesus we hear his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount being repeated to us all the time. Not necessarily by Christians. Many people who are not Christians will quote the Sermon on the Mount and take the teachings of Jesus and say, this is good teaching that we should apply to our life. Over the last nine years, there's been one man who's, who spoke about the Sermon on the Mount more than any other that I've seen, and that was Barack Obama. Continually preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, but not in a particularly positive or true way. He once stood up and said that the American economy should not be built on, built on the sand like the foolish builder, but should be built on the rock. Now, he wasn't meaning that the American economy should be built on Christ, which is, of course, what that uh, message is. But people will use the Sermon on the Mount, say that it's great teaching, but they'll reject the rest of the Bible. There's something about the Sermon on the Mount uh, that sounds good to them. But my guess is they never get to chapter 7 and verses 13 to 29. Because when we get to this point, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is saying, there is no spectrum here. There is no half disciple. There is only two choices. And these are the two choices. He goes on to list the two different choices. There's two different gates. There's two different roads. There's two different prophets. There's two different trees. There's two different disciples. There's two different houses. Now, if you've been coming to church for, for any number of, of years, you'll know that each and every one of these is a sermon in itself. And I'm not going to look at them. I'm just going to make the simple point that when we look at these two different things and all of these aspects, they look the same from a distance. It can be hard to distinguish between the two different trees. From a distance, it can be hard to spot. Even the two different gates from far away, it's hard to spot which is the, which is the narrow gate and which is the broad gate. It's hard to spot the narrow road and the broad road from a distance. They can look the same. 
They also look identical from the outside, some of them. The bad tree, the good tree. How do you know if it's a bad or a good tree? It's not because of what the tree looks like. It's because of the fruit that is sown from that, from that tree, the fruit that's gathered from that tree. They look identical from the outside. And Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says that there is only two choices. There's only two choices. You're either a true follower or not. You need to discern the difference. You're either with me or you're against me. And this is the crescendo of warnings that's building up all the way through Matthew chapter 7. And it gets to the most terrifying words that Jesus ever spoke. The verse in the Bible that more people struggle with than any other. The verse in the Bible that more people have asked me about in my time in ministry than any other. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are the words that each and every one of us should be terrified about at some point hearing. Because if Jesus says to us, away from me, you evildoers, then it's hell that we're destined for. It's hell that we are going to. And for many people, these verses are terrifying. And there are many people who struggle with their identity in Christ, struggle with their confidence in their own salvation, and they come back to these verses absolutely terrified about whether or not they are truly saved. And so I want to deal with that this afternoon with the time that we have and look at what it means to be a true, authentic follower of Christ so that we can have confidence in our salvation, confidence in our identity in Christ, and not have to worry or fear about these verses. I wonder when you look at these two or three verses on the screen here, if there's anything that sticks out to you as being fairly unique or a one-off throughout throughout the Bible. Something here that stands out as being different from many of the other verses and passages throughout the scriptures. When I first looked at this uh, subject, at this topic, I would never have spotted this unique part of the scriptures, which is these two simple words, Lord, Lord. These words are special. These words are easy to be missed. But there's something about these two words that are fairly unique without the scripture. Unique's not the wrong word because it happens 12 to 15 times throughout the Bible where a name is repeated. It doesn't happen a lot for a name or a title to be repeated. It happens 12 to 15 times throughout the Bible. And in each and every one of those cases, it is a landmark occasion. It is a turning point in a redemptive narrative in the story of Jesus, in the story of our salvation. The first one that we would have heard about in Sunday school happened to Abraham. As Abraham has has taken his son to the top of the mountain, God has asked Abraham to kill his only, well, to kill his son Isaac, the one that has been given to him by God, the one that God has promised he's going to make a great nation from. He's taken him to the top of the mountain and God has said, kill him, give him to me, sacrifice him to me. 
And so Abraham is standing at the top of this mountain. He has a dagger in his hand. He lifts it high and he's bringing it down when he hears an angel of the Lord say to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham was willing to give his son. But God didn't want him to. He just wanted to test his faith. And and the voice cries out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. Abraham went on to have Isaac. Isaac went on to have Jacob and Jacob had the same thing happen to him as Jacob's son Joseph had been sold into slavery without Jacob knowing it Jacob thought that his son had been killed and then his son has been actually been taken into Egypt and sold into slavery where he is uh, wrongly accused and put into prison and then after years in prison he comes out and he helps the Pharaoh in order to save the people of Egypt and the surrounding nations from a famine and as the nations look to Egypt to be saved uh, Joseph's brothers come to Joseph asking for help not knowing that it is actually uh, their brother that they've sold into that they've sold into slavery who is here to help him and after a few tests eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and asks is my father still alive he's thrilled to hear that he is and he says to his brothers go home get my father and bring him back to Egypt so his brothers go he, they, 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 Jacob is told that Joseph is alive and he's overcome with emotion and joy and then Jacob is told it's time to go to Egypt and does Jacob want to go to see his, his, his long lost son the song that he's longed for every day he doesn't want to go he doesn't want to, to leave he wants to stay where he is and he goes to bed one night and God speaks to Jacob speaks to Israel in a vision and says Jacob Jacob and again he says here am I I am the God the God of your father do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation I myself will go down to you with Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eye this nation that started with Abraham and Isaac it was going to be continued by, J- by, by Jacob and his family in Egypt. They had to go. And so God calls out to Jacob and tells him it's time to go. After many years, the pharaohs forget about the people of uh, the, J- Jacob's family. They forget about the salvation that was brought by Joseph. And they turn the children of Israel into slaves. Out of those slaves, one man is raised to, who is raised in the palace, who lives with Pharaoh's family and ends up killing an Egyptian uh, guard and then fleeing the country. That's Moses, of course. And Moses has 40 years being raised in the Pharaoh's palace and then 40 years in the wilderness. And at the end of those 40 years, as Moses is walking around as an exiled shepherd, he turns and he sees a bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And out of the bush, he hears this voice, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. And God, Moses is given this great, uh, this great command, this great mission, this great mandate to go and to rescue the children of Israel from Egypt. And that's what he goes and he does. 
He rescues the children of Israel from Egypt. He takes them towards the promised land and Joshua leads them into the promised land. As they get into this new land, this new land, this new nation, this new country of, of Canaan, um, priests, uh, judges are raised up to look after these people. And at the end of this line of judges comes a young boy called Samuel. And this young boy called Samuel is living in the palace with the priest Eli. And one night he is sitting in his bed and he hears the voice shout to him, Samuel. And so he gets up and he runs to his master and he says, what is it? I'm here. And Eli says, I'm not, I'm not looking for you. It wasn't, it wasn't me. Go back to bed. And again this happens. He hears the word Samuel and he goes and he says, here I am. You call for me. And again, Eli says, it wasn't me. It happens three times and on the third time Eli, who's a bit slow in the middle of the night finally realises what's happening and he says next time you hear this voice you hear the word Samuel say here I am Uh, sorry, say speak for your servant heareth and so Samuel goes and lies down and then he hears the words calling out Samuel, Samuel and Samuel says speak for your servant hears. Samuel goes on to anoint David, the, the, the second king, but the true king of Israel. David through time becomes the greatest king of Israel, but not a perfect king. A king who has challenges, one of these challenges being his son Absalom who rises up against him. He tries to take the throne from his father and he ends up going to war with his father and it breaks David's heart. And after a while of fighting and, and, and battling, eventually the word comes from a Cushite. And this man comes and says to David, good news for my lord the king, for the lord has delivered you, to you this day the hand of all who rose up against you. And David quickly asks, is it well with the young man Absalom? And he's answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he said, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? His son had been killed and he cries out, Absalom, Absalom. There are many more. As we get into the New Testament, we hear Martha, Martha, as Jesus is sitting, speaking to Mary and to Lazarus. And Martha is too busy, too anxious, too troubled to sit down and to listen to Christ. She's not there with him. She's not present with him. She is somewhere else. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And Martha comes and is present with Jesus. Jesus calls out Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He looks at the nation and his heart is torn. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. He looks at Jerusalem, but they're not with him like they should be. They are apart. And so he cries out to them. He cries out, Simon, Simon. Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have proof for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He's crying out passionately for Simon. He wants to strengthen Simon because he knows that Satan is going to test him. And then on the cross, as he cries out, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? As he goes to the cross to bring us to Christ, he ultimately feels like God is not with him. 
He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Probably the most famous that we could, our mind might have went to the start. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You can see all the way through the Bible when we see a name being repeated, a title being repeated, we see passion. We see a plea. We see a desire for two people to come together. And when these people say, Lord, Lord, when they look at Jesus, they have the right name. They have the right passion. They have the right actions as well. They're doing great things in Jesus' name. They're going and they're healing and they're proclaiming him and they're doing amazing things. They've got the right name, the right passion, the right actions. So what on earth was wrong? Why would Jesus say to these people, Go away. I never knew you. If they knew he was Lord, if they knew he was the Son of God, if they had a real passion towards him, if they'd spent their life doing things for him, why would they say, why would he say, Go away from me, I never knew you? And the answer's here. Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? You know, if we get face, oh, sorry, when we get face to face with Jesus, when we stand before him, if the first person that we want to speak about is ourselves, then there's a huge problem. If we stand before Jesus and say, let me tell you about everything that I have done, then we've got our faith back to front and don't truly understand who Jesus is or what he has done for us. If we stand up and say, it's all about me. If we say, did we not? Then we've got it back to front. We should be saying, Lord, Lord, did, did you not die for me? Lord, Lord, did you not make this possible? Have, have I got this wrong, Lord? I, 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 I was told, I was sure, I believed that you had done it all for me. It wasn't about what I was going to do. It was about me putting my trust in you. Lord, Lord, did I not put all my trust in you? That should be our attitude when we're face to face with Christ. The last person that we should want to speak about is ourselves. Because we know that ourselves, looking at ourselves is the reason that we would never get into heaven. We don't want God to look at ourselves. We want God to look at Christ. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. To pay for the price of our sins. So that God would never have to look on us. But he would look on his son, Jesus and this is what these, the problem, the mistake that these people were making. They were looking to themselves. They were looking to their works. They weren't looking to Jesus. In verse 15 we read, about, we read about false prophets coming. They come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. This word ferocious isn't, isn't the best translation. A better word would be ravenous, starving empty stomachs these are people who are not filled they're running around trying to fill themselves with good works and good deeds they're trying to fill their bellies by works and by men's applause rather than being filled by the spirit when we come to God when we come to Jesus Christ we are filled by the Holy Spirit we don't look for men's applause we don't look to try and work our way into God's presence to better ourselves in front of God by what we do. We leave it all to Christ. We are filled by him. In him we are filled with joy. In him we are filled with the spirit. And so these people were looking outside. 
They were looking, sorry, they were looking inside. They were looking to themselves. They continually saw themselves being empty and so they went and they tried to fill that hole rather than looking to Christ. And you may think, well, that's, that's fine, Dave, I, uh, that, but that's not, really, that's not really the problem that I have. You know, my, my fear is I don't know if I'm like that person who looks to fill themselves or if I'm like this person who's, who's filled with Christ. Because I struggle to know what my motivations are. I struggle to know if I'm truly authentic. How is it that I can determine whether or not I'm an authentic Christian or not? You know, the man who struggled with this more than any throughout the Bible was Paul. Paul really struggled uh, with this. And so he said, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So do, not you, do you not realize that this is, about your, this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Paul says if you really want to know if you're an authentic follower, if you really want to know if you're looking to Christ rather than looking to yourself, then examine yourself. Take the test. What on earth is the test? Is there a tick box test that we've got somewhere? Is it a multiple choice? Well the test is actually in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, the verses that we read, Jesus puts forward three ways that we will know whether or not we are truly authentic disciples. Whether we are really following after him. The first is by our fruit. He says, by, your, by their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from whistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognise them. Try, telling, try saying that ten times fast. That's a bit of a tongue twister. Jesus says... If you want to know if people are true, authentic followers of me, look at their fruit. See what they're leaving behind. See what impact they're having in their life. See how they are growing. See how they are developing. See if they're leaving back, if they're leaving behind good, healthy fruit or if they're leaving behind poison. If I was to ask you to show me the fruit in your spiritual life, if I was to ask you to show me where the fruit is, what change has happened? If I was to ask you how, are you, how are you more like Christ today than you were ten years ago, or one year ago, five years ago, would you have an answer? Jesus says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. What fruit do we have in our lives? If we're struggling to answer that question, then perhaps we're not following Christ as closely as we should be, or perhaps we're not following him at all. The late Dr. James McGinley put it in this unique fashion when he was asked whether or not Christians should judge each other. He said, I am no judge, but I am a fruit inspector. What fruit are we leaving behind? So that's the first test, the fruit. The second test is will. Whose will are we living for? Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Whose will are we living for? Whose will is more important in our lives? Is it our will? Or our partner's will? Or our family's will? Our children's will? Or is it God's will? If God's will is the priority, 
then that is proof that we are living for him. God's will should be the priority for our life. Now let me say that quite often in my life, my will goes before God's. And if you are very honest with yourself, I don't think you could say anything differently. How often do we put our own will above God's? Very often. And that's okay, because we're not perfect yet. We will be perfect someday, but we're not there yet. We'll be perfect when we get to heaven. We'll be perfect when we are just like Christ, but we're not there yet. And it's also okay because there's someone else from the Bible who struggled with this, Paul. And Paul wrote, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not know the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Romans chapter 17. I don't know about you, but I take great comfort from those verses. How often do I pray this prayer for myself and battle with these things myself when I put my own priorities above God, when I, I put my own sinful natures up, my own sinful nature above God's plan and God's will for my life? And this is what we are continually battling with in the Christian faith. This is, this is sanctification um, in a nutshell, isn't it? This is what we are going through. So Paul went through these things. Paul battled with his own, putting his own will above the will of God. And yet there's no question that Paul was an authentic Christian. So what, make, what makes Paul the authentic Christian here? You know, I think the key verse is here. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. But I have the desire to do what is good. Where's our desire? Is our desire to do the will of God? Do we know that that's what we're working for? Do we, do, do we have regret when we put our own will above God's? Do we have the desire to do what is good? If we do, if we have that desire, the desire to do the will of God, then that is another mark of us being an authentic Christian. Finally, we come to the storms. Now, we could have spent, well, we could have spent a week on the storms. But let me just pull out a couple of thoughts. When we read of these storms in verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. We've got two choices. We choose Christ or we choose the world. When we choose Christ, then we choose the rock. And we build our house on the rock. And the house stands firm because Christ doesn't fail. Christ doesn't falter. Christ never changes. When we build our house on the sand, it shifts beneath our feet because the world never stays the same. The world is always changing. Its priorities are always changing. It is never the same. Christ is the rock. Christ is the one that we build our lives on. And even when death comes, still we stand firm because we are continually with Christ. The rock never lets us go. 
and so we should build our house on the rock. These are the two choices, the sand or the rock. But let me just say, whether we build our house on the sand or we build our house on the rock, the storms come to both. The storms don't just hit the house on the sand. The storm comes to the house on the rock as well. And there is no promise that there, will not, that there will not be storms in your life when you follow Jesus Christ. In fact, it is the complete opposite. Storms are guaranteed when you follow Jesus Christ. When you're truly following after him, the storms will come. But the great promise that we have in this, these verses is that when the storms come, when we build our life on Christ, our house never falls. He's always with us. The rock never shifts. The rock never fades away. He's always with us and he always stands with us. So, when we look at our lives, how do we face the storms? Do we stand strong or do we shift? When the storms come, where do we put our trust? Do we put our trust in ourselves or in the world or do we put our trust in Christ? Whose will is, are, are we prioritising in our life? Whose will do we have a desire to follow? Is it our own or is it God's? And what is the fruit in our lives? If the fruit inspector came, where would you point them? What would you say to them? How would you be able to answer that question? Where is the fruit in your life? Jesus said, if you're an authentic Christian, then you will build your life on the rock and not on yourself. Let me just leave you with some quotes from, from George Whitfield. George Whitfield wrote in The Method of Great Grace, Self-righteousness is the last idol that needs to be plucked out of the heart before you can become a Christian. If you're an authentic Christian and you're building your life on Christ and not on yourself, you know that there's nothing within you that would compel God to bring you into heaven. There's nothing within you that is righteous and so you cast it all aside and you put your trust in Christ. He goes on to say, to become a Christian is not just to repent of your sin, but to repent of your righteousness. To say, God, without, without you I am nothing. There is nothing in me that is clean. There is nothing in me that is pure. But in your Son, in your Son, I can have righteousness. Where do we find our righteousness this morning? Is it in ourselves or is it in Christ? If it's in Christ, then we can say with confidence that we are authentic Christians, true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's my prayer for, for us all this morning. Let me just uh, quickly pray. Father, we just thank you for the time of your word this afternoon. Father, we thank you, Lord. Yeah, just that we can have confidence and clarity, Father, around these issues. So we just realise that so many people, so many Christians, Father, just struggle with these verses and struggle with the, their confidence in their salvation and their identity in Christ. And that's not how you want it to be. Father, so many times we look to ourselves. We look to our own abilities, Father. We look to our own good works. We look to our own evil works as well, Father. Help us to look to you. Help us to look to your son. Father, help us to build our lives on the rock and to know that that foundation is sure and steadfast. Father, we pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would be able to say that we are authentic Christians. Father, that we desire to do your will. Father, that there, are, that there is fruit going on in our lives. Father, that when the storms come, we look to Christ and not to ourselves. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would just send us from here, Father, 
with a confidence not in ourselves, but a confidence in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.